Welcome to As the Story Grows. I'm Brian Patton. Today we welcome Project 86 frontman Andrew Schwab to the podcast. Project 86 will release Omni Part 1 this Friday. I've been a fan of Project 86 for a long time, and it was great getting to chat with Andrew and get a different perspective on the band than I got when Stephen and I talked last year. Andrew talks about his first musical endeavor as a hip-hop artist, how trying the Truthless Heroes era was for him, keeping the band going, finding a new voice on Omni, and more. I loved getting to sit down and have this conversation with Andrew, and I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. point you would move to Colorado for like a job at a church. Is that still where you're at? No, I've been yeah. in Southern California the last uh, almost six years. Uh, what brought moving back there? Uh, I mean, it was, it was not meant to be a permanent thing. Oh. <laughs> uh, it was kind of like family related mm-hmm. that we went out there to help with some stuff. Gotcha. Um, and it, you know, it was meant to be a year or two and it ended up being, you know, I think two and a half years yeah. when we moved back. But honestly, it was just missing Southern California. Yeah. The weather, the weather, because I've lived here most of my life. So you, yeah. get, you get spoiled. I grew up in a really, I, I grew up near Lake Erie in, in uh, Western Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. Uh, which is a crazy amount of snow. Yeah. Uh, and when I ended up in Southern California, again, moving with family, uh, it was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this weather. We go to school outside. It's and so I've been spoiled by that for like three decades. Yeah. So then we moved back to kind of cold, and I was yeah. like, yeah, this is a great idea from a novelty <laughs> standpoint, but not that fun anymore. Yeah. After about after about three months of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. What was uh what was growing up in uh, Pennsylvania like? Oh man, I grew up in a really small town. It was very like rural. I joke with people and tell them that I grew up in the woods, which isn't that far from the truth. Like we had an acre of land and uh, all of our neighbors had an acre of land. And if you were to, you know, use Google earth and, you know, zoom into the street view of my house, you can't even see it because there's so many trees. (laughs) So uh, we had woods behind our house where my dad would hunt uh, we had a lake uh, 150 paces down the road where we would fish. Um, and it, it was a very uh, quiet life. Yeah. 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 How old were you when you moved to California? I was 16. You were 16? Yeah. Junior in high school. Nice. Nice. Was it just work that took your family out there? Yeah. Actually, you know what? I was 15. <laughs> and it was my not my junior year, my sophomore year. It was my junior year when we moved to Mission Viejo. We actually moved. Let's see here. When we first moved to Southern California, it was for a work opportunity. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my parents are split and uh, they split when I was very young. So I lived with my dad in Pennsylvania until I reached high school age. Mm-hmm. And then to be frank, I was like, man, it would be really cool to not live in the woods. <laughs> so my, my mom actually lived in a suburb of Baltimore and I ended up moving to Maryland. Uh, we lived there for about a year and then a new job opportunity came in Southern California, but it wasn't like cool Southern California. It yeah. <laughs> was that, this town called Victorville, which is in the high desert on the way to Vegas. If you're driving there from LA or orange County. 
uh, really not cool place to live <laughs> and not what you would you would think in terms of southern california yeah uh, where, where are you from Brian? Uh, just uh the suburbs of dc dc okay yeah. so yeah. where i was living in maryland is not far from where you were and that's a yeah. specific culture and yeah when we moved out here it was culture shock yeah <laughs> and the high desert was i don't know how to explain it man imagine 25 mile an hour winds all the time and um just being on the edge of society in a mad maxian nightmare state <laughs> yeah. kind of thing and anyone who's lived there would probably articulate it the same way yeah. there's a kind of a joke about the high desert for people who both live there and and, and don't live there yeah. in southern california so we lived there for a year and then another job situation changed and uh we ended up in mission viejo which is like the pinnacle of um, I don't know, so SoCal suburban yeah. living, you know, it's beautiful, but mm -hmm. like, again, another culture shock. So, yeah. 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 What got you into music? That's a great question. I, when I was young, I grew up as an only child. And I think if I wasn't an only child, I probably wouldn't have to end up doing what I <laughs> ended up doing what I do. Yeah. Uh, again, I gave you the scenario. We, we lived a pretty quiet life in the woods yeah. <laughs> and both m my dad and my stepmom were pretty quiet people. And I was always pretty uh, expressive and uh, inquisitive and I guess scholastic. I was really into school. I was, you know, uh, I was also really into sports. Um, I, you know, I'm not the most outgoing social person, but, but I definitely grew up in an environment where it was like me and only me. Mm -hmm. with my imagination when I was a kid. So very first song I remember ever loving was Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. <laughs> and then uh, my stepdad actually um, exposed me to a ton of like classic rock music, you know, nice. Led Zeppelin. And, and I remember listening to them a ton. Uh, I also remember listening to a ton of Sticks, which is really funny. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're, the, they're the opposite of what you would think of being cool. But I remember being four and five years old and jamming to like sticks and Led Zeppelin and all these other bands when we were in the car. And yeah. I was always on these long drives going back and forth between parents, you know, cause I live about six hours away from one another. Wow. So a ton of music in the child in, in early childhood. And then the first record that really got me was run DMC's raising hell. Nice. Which I, I think I was in fifth grade. Um, I loved that record. And then the first time I ever, loved a band like actually the band mm -hmm. was when license to ill dropped by oh, these that's, that's cool uh so uh when i got a little older started getting into metal you know everybody loved metallica yeah you know i had a lot of friends that were into you know pick a metal band from the 80s we all listened to it and you know wore the t-shirts and yeah. all that stuff so i i always kind of liked the stuff that was a little bit more i guess extreme for for music even back then in junior high yeah um whether it was you know super heavy metal or yo mtv raps you know that was cool back mm -hmm. then you know yeah. to listen that was alternative music back mm -hmm. in the, the 80s late 80s yeah 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 when you get to california in high school are you just like is that a moment where you can like re-envision who you are as a person and like how people view you and like trying to pick oh, your yeah. routine or whatever. Yeah. That was the thing that I learned. Cause I went to, to four different high schools, right? I started in Maryland and then 
went to two different schools in Victorville. I remember when we got to Victorville, the public high school was so crazy, gnarly, dangerous <laughs> oh, man. that my parents put me in a private school. So I ended up going to like a private Christian school and uh, I grew up Catholic, but back then, like I didn't, I don't really think about any of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I just remember thinking, man, this is so lame. Cause there was like a hundred kids in the whole school, the whole high school. Wow. And I was like, all right, next semester, just throw me in with the, the wolves <laughs> <laughs> ended up going to the public school, which ended up being fine. Yeah. It, you know, I didn't get killed obviously. Uh, and then, um, yeah, by the time that I ended up at Mission Viejo, it was my fourth reinvention wow. in three years. So I kind of started embracing being the new guy. Yeah. 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 At what point were you looking at like, all right, I need to start a band. I started dabbling in music as a direct result of my stepdad being a musician mm -hmm. when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, we had a very unique situation because we lived in this pretty big house um, and we had an extra bedroom. So the front of house engineer for his band rented a room from us. So not only did I have access to a musician, but I had access to a sound guy with a ton of gear. <laughs> so my friends and I would make demos in our room and man, oh gosh, you talk about like, <laughs> blackmail material. Oh yeah. gosh, I have some old stuff videos and and demos and oh, oh, oh it, it was amazing we yeah. we actually started a rap group again I'm, <laughs> this is 14 year old me we called ourselves the white posse oh my god isn't that amazing <laughs> isn't that like the best i, I kind of want to re you know revisit that a little bit just because mm. of the band name oh man that's wild so we were just we all loved the Beastie Boys and yeah. watched the OMTV raps and all that stuff. And that was a very short-lived era. But that was yeah. my first sort of foray into music. Uh, I got a turntable. We got records. We we did the uh, the tape dubbing where you would mm -hmm. make beats and where you would, you know, it was a lot of work. But, yeah, know, yeah. Rewind and press pause and re-record and all that, you know, tape dubbing to make beats. And we had this little demo that we made and passed it around school and stuff. And it actually wasn't that bad. Uh, at first, we were really bad. But as we did it more and more, it, it got a little bit better. And mm -hmm. I remember, you know, hanging around some people actually kind of being impressed. And uh, I was really into basketball back then. I showed some of the guys on the team. And this one friend of mine was like, yeah, my, my, my cousin's a DJ. And he, he does a lot of stuff in, in Baltimore and in D.C. You guys should hook up. I think you would do really well together. He was like doing legit stuff. Yeah. Because I used to like you know, get a ton of flack because I was like the white kid, you know, trying yep. to rap, you know what I mean? But I actually could do it, mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not. And uh, so there was, it was right on the brink of like almost becoming something beginning of my sophomore year. And then we moved. And that was, yeah. that was like the earth shattering death uh, chapter of my life at that time. You yeah. know, I thought my life was over because <laughs> we were leaving all this. I had a girlfriend that was on the basketball team. <laughs> I was going to make a record, you know, what I mean? <laughs> at least in my brain. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, that was the beginning. No, oh, man. What was that transition from like wanting to be a hip hop artist to like fronting a rock band? Oh, uh, you know, I, when I, when I moved to Southern California, I kind of let all that stuff go. Yeah. Um, you talk about like reinventing yourself, you know, by the time I reached Mission Viejo, you know, I didn't even think about any of that. No. I still enjoyed hip hop, music, yeah. but I also really liked rock and, metal you yeah. know i uh, you know as i grew older I, I you know the palette expanded yeah uh 
ended up, let's see, my freshman year of college, I ended up going to junior college in Southern California. So I stayed in the area that we lived. And we had a very vibrant scene back yep. then. And it was kind of emerging. So I was exposed to, I remember the first show that I went to, uh, first like underground show, a friend of mine uh, who I met at college, I ended up, <laughs> this is really funny. I, <laughs> I always did well in school. So in college, I set a goal for myself that I would never get anything but an A. And I, <laughs> I, I failed. I got one B. <laughs> and uh, I ended up kind of tutoring a friend of mine that, that I knew from high school. I didn't know him very well, but he was in the, kind of the extended group of friends of ours in, in math. We were taking the same math class. Yeah. And I ended up getting together with him often to, to tutor him. And he ended up inviting me uh, to a show. And we went and saw this band called Plank Eye. And uh, opening for them, I think it was four or five bands on the bill, was a band called Focused. And I had never gone to, like, shows in my life, yeah. well, you know, up to that point. I really wasn't that, I wasn't old enough. My kid, my parents were never going to let me go to stuff like that before I was 18. So I hadn't been exposed to shows at all. I always dreamed of going to them. Uh and so that was the first underground show I ever mm -hmm. went to. And I remember just wide eyed because, it, you know, there's three or 400 kids in this room and it, it was legit. And, yeah. and I remember looking up at what focused was playing. They were one of the bands that I really liked back yeah. then. You know, they were one of the first bands I liked from that whole scene. I remember looking up there and going, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, I could do that. And I could do it really well. And I just, felt that like pull, you know yeah. what I mean? The, the fire was lit mm -hmm. and with, within a very short time, the way I was explaining to people is it's not something I wanted to do. It's not something I was going to try to do. It was something I was doing. Yeah. Like I had to do it. It was so like t close to my heart, you know? And of course, like all of these other memories leading up to that, you know, being exposed to music and being able to dabble with it and kind of being in the right place at the right time, you know, living with a sound engineer and a musician and, you know, mm -hmm. oh, that was kind of the foundation. Yeah. And, and I, was, I was a huge fan because I, I had nothing else to do, man, yeah. alone. You know, I was either playing sports out in, the, out in the yard, you know, backyard football games, shooting hoops, you know, going to my sporting events or listening to music, nerding out over lyrics, um, imagining myself on stage. Yeah. You know, that doesn't happen if you have, you know, siblings and you live in a happening suburbia. You know, you get distracted by other stuff going on. about uh project day six and how this band get started i think it was 1994 and it was shortly after yeah i went to that first show and i wanted more so yeah. i just started going to shows and started making friends and started meeting people 
And the first connection that I made was this guy named Alex. Uh, he was the first real connection uh, in terms of assembling a band. Uh, and, and that was like 94. And he was just starting to play drums and he was in high school. I think he was like a sophomore or a junior in high school. He was pretty young. And we met through a, a mutual friend at a show. And then it was about as simple as we should start a band. Yeah. You know, he had never been in a band. I had never been in a band. And that was it. And we went out and tried to recruit people to play. We actually formed a band briefly, like a hardcore band. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys that was a part of that ended up being in the band Unashamed. But I think he was only at a few of the band practices. We only had like two or three band practices. <laughs> and all the guys lived far apart and we were all super young. And you know, some of the guys didn't have cars and gear and all that. So I, re <laughs> I remember we were actually booked you know, putting my fingers in the air quotes to open for focused, which was like a huge big deal for yeah. us back then at age 18 or whatever we were. I mean, I was 18, you know, Alex was like 15, um, I think. And, uh, we ended up not doing that show because we didn't have enough songs. <laughs> so <laughs> we had like one and a half songs. Oh, bad. Yeah. And so out of that project though, or, you know, we didn't have a name. Yeah. That was kind of the foundation for Project 86. It was just a matter of finding, you know, the right guys to jam with. Yeah. Wanted to take it seriously. I always wanted to take it seriously. It's like, if we're going to do this, let's let's do something with it. Let's not be, you know, one of 18,000 bands that, you know, are flakes and, and you, mm -hmm. know, you know, we have a few band practice, play a few shows and then break up. You know, I only, I only wanted to work with, and Alex agreed, I only wanted to work with, uh, guys were going to take it seriously. So it mm -hmm. took a couple of years to find the right people. Yeah. And then in 96, we started, we started practicing. Um, and it, it, it took a little while to, you know, get the material together. But, uh, after about six months of writing songs, we booked our first show and that was in, um, Mission Viejo, California. We were actually opening for the band Stavesacre. So, uh, yeah, that, a lot of great memories wrapped yeah. up in that era for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd the name come from? We couldn't think of a name, so we would just refer to it as, you know, our project or the mm -hmm. project. And then as was cool back around that time, we thought, you know, let's just put a number after the word project, <laughs> you know, which so many bands were doing around that time. And the number 86, um, I don't know. I don't remember where the number came from. Um, obviously the reference is, you know, when you reject or throw something out, um, I, we just thought project 86 sounded good, yeah. you know, and then, uh, we sort of twisted the meaning of being 86 a little bit when we were asked to say, Oh, you know, we're just trying to do our own thing, whether we're quote accepted or rejected. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, there wasn't a ton of thought put into it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just like, that sounds cool. Let's roll with that. You yeah. know, when people ask what it means, we'll kind of leave it vague. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And that was like an era where like people put a lot of focus on like, especially Christian bands, their name meaning something. It's like, eh, it just sounds cool. <laughs> like, yeah. And that was kind of the philosophy early on with a lot of the decisions that we made. Oh, if it sounds cool, let's do that. Yeah. You know? we really didn't overthink a lot of things uh, in the early days. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of drove your sound, especially on like that first record of like, 
I mean, you were doing hardcore previously and that was like your inspiration for starting this, but what led to kind of this more post-hardcore sound? One of the things that's always boggled me is how like Project got lumped into new metal and I was like, mm. oh, they're a post-hardcore band. But <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's... I think of what's the best way to summarize that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I liked the, the, the merger of you know, the hip hop and, and the, the metal or the hard rock or whatever. Uh, and back then it was still kind of cool. Yeah. You know, you had a band like downset that was basically a hardcore band, mm -hmm. but they, they rapped, you know, mm -hmm. and even the band focused had a song where there was like rapping on yeah. it. So like when that whole thing first started, it wasn't convoluted, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it hadn't become this popular thing yet. And it was still quote unquote cool. Yeah. So when we first started, it was like, yeah, we like Deftones. We like, obviously everybody liked Rage Against the Machine. Like I loved that band, you know? Mm. And when we first started, it was like unintentionally, oh, we're a Rage cover band, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, we, once we got a little feedback, it was like, oh, we can't do that. You know, we learned too far. And, and I take responsibility for that because I, I love that band. Yeah. You know, it was, we had to learn a lot of lessons. I had to learn a lot of lessons it's about like, you know, it's important to have your own voice, your mm -hmm. own sound, you know. Um, we definitely all sort of came out of that same scene, um, but we wanted to do something that was maybe looking beyond that scene a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't know that we ever talked about or had an aspiration to like sign to a major label or anything, like right. that, but <laughs> we wanted to do a little bit more quote unquote commercial sound, yeah. I guess. So taking some of those roots, uh, of coming out of that world and then mixing it in with, with this sort of emerging sound it wasn't new metal yet. There were only yeah. like three or four bands doing it and they right. were all cool. <laughs> Deftones right. was cool, you know, <laughs> when they dropped adrenaline and I mean, they're still cool, but what I'm saying is it was just a handful of bands, you know, I yeah. guess tool was a part of that too, even though they weren't like rapping or anything, yeah. but yeah, the, the new metal thing, um, part of that was marketing you know, because that sound started to emerge. Part of that was we were sort of coming up under POD. Yeah. You know, um, and part of that at, from there, it sort of steamrolled, you know, we ended up, you know, only playing with those kinds of bands. Mm -hmm. And and that was kind of one of the things that we really struggled with. It's mm -hmm. like, ah, oh, we're bands that, you know, that we're fans of. Not that, not, yeah. not saying that, that we disliked any of the bands we were touring with, but like we always imagined ourselves being a part of like, a different circuit of bands yeah. than where we ended up. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that unfolded along the way that if you had it to do over again, you know, hindsight's always 20. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, you'd be a little bit more intentional about certain things. We weren't mm -hmm. that intentional about anything really until later on, mm -hmm. you know, um, really up until the third record. And even then we were just still pretty young and trying to figure things out. Yeah, that time frame of music, it went from very quickly being like heavy music, where it's like if you listen to POD and Project and Zeo and Dextol all in the same breath, it was like, yeah, of course, they're all the same genre of music. And then it was very subdivided into genre very quickly in the 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, you used to be able to, because there weren't as many bands, you, know, mm -hmm. you just throw... Right you know, bands of different sounds together and there's a tour package or there's yeah. a show and kids will come out because it's all from the same kind of world, mm -hmm. you know, but as more and more people start making music, 
you know, then you have greater division between the little subgenres and such. Yeah. Yeah. What led you guys to Tooth and Nail Records? That's an interesting question. I think it was an inevitability because we were all fans of that scene. Mm-hmm. So we were going to all the shows and, you know, we had a lot of relationships within that world with everyone from you know, the Supertones guys that we all ended up going to church with. Um, the friend that I referenced who took me to the first show was the drummer for the Supertones, Jason. I guess, yeah. Uh, and all of the guys in the band were really close with him. So I know he was one of the people kind of throwing stuff out and the other guys in that band. Um, I know the guys in Stavesacre were a part of kind of mentioning it to tooth and nail. And um, yeah, we had made enough friends in that world that it's, it kind of became sort of, it just made sense. You know, yeah. uh, I remember we played Tom fest in 97 and I remember giving the demo to Brandon and uh, him saying, Oh yeah, I heard about you guys. And we were like, Whoa, cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and it just sort of happened. There were other yeah. labels who were interested, uh, but that was kind of always the place where we wanted to land. Yeah. What was the pitch for BEC and you guys being on this new imprint that like, I mean, it's now like a full on worship label, but yeah, like, okay. at the time it was like Joy Electric, Project A6, The Supertones and uh, Pep Squad. Like, yeah. What, so, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you talk about, you know, hindsight being 2020 yeah. and like not really having a lot of intention. We didn't know what we're doing. We didn't know anything. Yeah. So one of the things that happened when we signed a tooth and nail was Brandon made it pretty evident to us that he was the only one who wanted to sign us, <laughs> that the rest of the staff was not into signing our band. Oh, no. <laughs> so he mentioned that several times to us when we were <laughs> signing to the label. So I think there was an, an idea in our heads, because we were already trying to do something different, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't want to just be tied to one kind of scene. You know, As yeah. much as we liked the tooth and nail scene back then, we always imagined like doing something, hopefully maybe that would make the band, you know, transcend that or be, yeah. well, we wanted to be a big band, you know? Yeah. So all we said to him was what's going to give us the opportunity to be the biggest band that we can be. And he said, well, we're doing this BEC thing. It's meant to be a little bit more commercial. And we're like, okay, that sounds great. But it was never mentioned to us like that. That was meant to be like commercial Christian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like worship. It, that was just kind of lost or, or yeah. maybe it was, you know, we just didn't get it or yeah. something, but in hindsight, yeah, of course we would have not chosen to, we, we should have done the solid state thing for yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. We just didn't get it. We just yeah. didn't understand. We didn't think about it. We're just like, Oh, well, we get to put out a record, you know, mm-hmm. that's it. I think I asked uh, Stephen this when he was on the pod, but when you guys were recording and writing Drawing Black Lines, did you know like that there was like lightning in a bottle there, that this was going to be a thing that was going to catch fire? Not really. <laughs> um, it was very organic. It yeah. happened fast. 
uh, I think there might have been a conversation at some point or just a natural evolution saying, let's do something a little bit more energetic, maybe mm-hmm. a little little bit more aggressive. Um, but we weren't sitting in meetings together, you know, crafting the sound or anything. Yeah. Um, I know Steve came in with a lot of fresh ideas on that record. And we had all, like, there were other factors involved, I think, that that helped contribute to that. And I've thought about this a lot over the years. I've always mm-hmm. been a little bit, I've, I've worn the analytical hat in, <laughs> inside the band. That's been my job, I guess, um, or my role. Uh, we had come off the tour with P.O.D. and Blindside, the Warriors mm-hmm. tour. And there, that was a really good tour. And P.O.D. was just signed to Atlantic. So they had a lot of hype going. And I think there was like some healthy competition that really emerged. I mean, not, I don't think, excuse me. I know <laughs> we, we would go on stage every night and try to like, you know, match their show or beat yeah. them. You know, was the yeah. goal. I mean, in a healthy way, not in a, like a jerky kind of way, yeah. but like that healthy competition between brothers kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we were, that lit the fire force because we saw a lot of the big things that were happening around them. And we were kind of saying, why not us? Yeah. And then when we found out Garth was going to produce the record, uh, which was a contact that tooth and nail had made through him doing the Supertones record. Uh, we were, we were like, okay, we have to bring our A game. Yeah. Like this, this is going to new places. So I think some of that, you know, healthy competition fire, I think, um, I think we felt like we had a better record in us. You know, the first record was, you know, for what it was, it did very well. I, I don't think it's aged as well as some of the other music, yeah. you know. Um, but th- we had like a core audience now, but we just wanted to do something that was, was a little bit more upbeat because it was a drony kind of sound minus mm-hmm. Pipe Dream. Yeah. You know, it was a really <laughs> kind of a slow record. And yeah. I think we just all felt like we could take it to the next level. Seeing it happen to our friends band, we're like, we can do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the vibe. And so it was just, a, it was a lot of contributing little things. I think that none of us were really thinking about that, an- that analytically probably besides me. And yeah. I wasn't really thinking about it that much. Yeah. Um, and, and it was fun. Uh, we were having fun making heavy music. Garth definitely made it heavier. You know, the yeah. production approach makes a difference. The way it was mixed, it all was the right chemistry. Uh, we we didn't take much time recording it either. I mean, it was a rush job. You know, mm-hmm. I wrote a lot of those lyrics in the hotel room walk it, before I walked to the studio, <laughs> you know? And I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I'm listening to yeah. the track and I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Let's, you know, I remember taking the other guy's CD books <laughs> and like listening to songs, trying to get ideas, just random <laughs> bands that I had never heard of. And, you know, I was like, oh, this looks cool. Let's listen to this. And then I would be like, oh, okay. And then just get the ideas like that. I'm listening to like, you know, random Swedish rock bands and Weezer <laughs> and all kinds of different stuff. And wrote a lot of those songs uh, in the studio, basically, nice. you know, or in the hotel. Yeah. You know, I didn't say that to anyone. You sure. Yeah. You know, I just, yeah, I, I think guys in the band knew. But um, yeah, I didn't say that to Garth or anything. I was like, yeah, I just come up with that an hour ago. <laughs> <You know? Right? laughs> was, I've done that a lot throughout the, my career, just kind of coming up with stuff on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, hindsight being what it is, like, aside from just oversaturation of the market, what, what do you think went wrong with Atlantic and oh, Truthless Heroes? That's like, a whole episode. Well, I'm... <laughs> Because I think of all the Project 86 records, that one, I think people have warmed the most to over time where people are like, right. 
oh, we judge too harshly. This is a good record. And like, so <laughs> we, you know, if you go back through the catalog, there's been moments where we kind of took a left turn, you mm-hmm. know, more than one. And that was yeah. the first left turn. Uh, one of the things that was talked about uh, inside the band was we don't want to be Limp Biscuit. We, we don't want to be associated with a lot of that, that stuff yeah. because that, that had become really, like you said, saturated and, yeah. and we could tell it had a short shelf life. Yeah, it you got know. toxic really fast too. Yeah. People were Woodstock like, ah, ninety nine yeah. killed <laughs> basically, <laughs> yeah. or started to kill it. Um, so there was intention there, and you know the the next question was, well, where do we go? Mm-hmm. You know, and it was always like, well, let's just see what happens. And what happened was more of like a rock sound, and there was specific uh, pressure from the outside to deliver commercial material and the pressure came from behind the scenes it wasn't necessarily directly from anr i mean it was there but it wasn't like you know john or anr was always very supportive he was a cheerleader for the band he just wanted us to to succeed you know so whatever we could do to succeed but he also knew the system and it was like hey we got to give the up and up the upper level people something they can feel strong about marketing yeah so that became the emphasis, whether it was it was talked about or not. You know, obviously management was pushing for that. We're looking at things that are happening with POD, but really the biggest pressure was um, we were behind the scenes trying to navigate a buyout of our contract with mm-hmm. Tooth and Nail by Atlantic, and our attorney and our manager was trying to orchestrate that. And so that ended up being a kind of a difficult situation for us because we were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. But it was definitely said to us, said to me on the phone, like a lot of the other guys weren't in on some of these calls. Um, I know Alex was, but, you know, the other two guys, they didn't really want anything to do with all the politicking and yeah. stuff. And I don't blame them. <laughs> 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 that stuff will ruin you. Yeah. And, right. <laughs> and uh, it was said to us, you know, on several occasions by our attorney and by our manager, you know, if you guys don't deliver, you know, some big songs, you know, they're not going to buy you out of your deal. So that pressure was there mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and I think just uh, all the politics started to kind of kind of wear on us a little bit. Um, my response was like, okay, I want to, you know, the only thing I have like a say over in this situation is like the lyrical concept. Mm-hmm. So I want to go deeper and tell a story or grand right. concept or a world or whatever. And yeah, and I really think if, if, it, had, if it had been mixed differently, it, it really would have been a kind of a yeah. different story. And yeah. uh, if Spy Hunter was the first song, yeah, it would have been a different story. Hindsight's twenty twenty, man. Yeah. There's a lot of things that we could have done differently. Um, everything happens for a reason. Like, yeah. I, I don't, you know, there, were, there was a very long time after that because I wouldn't say things fell apart, but we, we definitely like the fans did not receive that record that well. No. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say two thirds of our fans waved goodbye <laughs> because it was a different sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, drawn black lines was a well-received record. It had a great energy to it. It was dark, but positive at the same time. It was unique in the context. You know, I hope I'm not like touting it too much, but like, you know, I was really stoked on drawing black lines. Yeah. I really loved that record. I loved that. It was really heavy. Yeah. You know, for the time, especially. Yeah. Um, so Truthless Heroes was hard. It was hard to write. It took us 18 months, I think, mm-hmm. to, to do it. Like, we had to have, like, demo, finished demos with vocals, and I never did that, really. Yeah. Uh, a little bit, but, you know, I like kind of writing in the studio, you know. 
typical procrastinator, you know, front man, you know, with that stuff uh, on, especially on certain records. Um, yeah. And, and I, I do like a lot of the music on to on truthless heroes. Yeah. But the memories are convoluted for yeah. me. So it's hard when I think about it, my heart kind of sinks a little because there's, there's all the, what might've been, you know, which uh, you know, over time you kind of realize things went the way they were supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also just the, the, mistakes or the painful parts of it, it was like oh if we just want to put spinor first you know yeah. and i don't know why you know to this day like i think i think we had all these shiny new toys in the forms of newer songs and the emphasis was giving the label what they wanted spinor was kind of an afterthought it was an older song by then yeah. we wrote it the late uh part of the drawing black lines album cycle and you know uh, no one was excited about that song but the fans would have been you know, and I think it would have given a different impression on Truth of Zeros, and if, probably if I would have b- abandoned the too much emphasis on the concept stuff. And, <laughs> right. You know, you know what I mean? Just pick the best songs and put them in the right order. And that's yeah. It, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that demo for Spy Hunter that ended up on Solid State Volume 3, people were like, oh, Project is going to crush it. And then it was like, the wait for Truthless Heroes. And then it was like, where's the song we all like? <laughs> Right, and Garth produced that one, yeah. which is why it sounded more like Drawing Black Lines. Yeah. You see, you know, production and mixing and even mastering, it makes a big difference. That's mm-hmm. something that we've experienced over the yeah. years, good and bad. Can yeah. make or break material. Yeah. For sure. Disguise As members of Project have left the band and as you come to the end of um, Picket Fence Cartel and it's just you there, were there conversations you had with people or something that made you keep going or was there a moment where you're like, all right, I guess the band is done now? Yeah, you know, was you know there was a lot of wrestling with all of that for many years because mm-hmm. after Truthless Heroes, you know things started to fracture, mm-hmm. you know creatively and guys, you know you get older, you become adults, and yeah. you want to do other things, which is totally fair, and that happens to a lot of bands. Um, I don't know if I ever even imagined myself doing it nearly as long as yeah. I have music itself. Um, it's really just always been kind of a record to record kind of decision. Um, and it's not been an easy one for me personally, because I think from the day that I graduated college and sat down with my mom and she said to me point blank, like, why are you choosing this? You can do anything with your life, you know, and, and be good at it. You know, why are you choosing this? And, I, and my answer was just, I want to do something that makes a difference in people's lives. Yeah. And I love this. I just love it. It's not about making money. It's not about any of that stuff. If it's done well, we'll make a living. And that's, that's it. But I, I have to do this. Yeah. So I've always questioned it though. <laughs> you know, it, it, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Should I go be an accountant? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and with, you know, OG lineup uh, evolving out of the band, it was like a four or five year period yeah. where guys were kind of e- easing out of the band. Um, Alex being first, Randy being second, Steve being third. Um, and it's all sort of part and parcel of the same idea of just moving, moving ahead in life. Hmm. Um, 
got to that turning point and you know, I had a decision to make and, you know, I, there was a lot of self-doubt in that, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, I, you know, I'm going to take on a lot more responsibility in terms of, you know, the music in addition to the lyrics and vocal, yeah. um, am I up for this challenge? And I think that's the thing that, you know, regardless of, cause I knew that, you know, some people weren't going to like that, you know, yeah. you know, obviously the, the guys that were in the band probably were not going to like that. And, you know, certain segments of the fan base might, might not like that. And maybe it won't work, you know, but I really liked the challenge of like taking on more of the creative responsibility, um, and kind of proving mostly to myself, um, that I could do that. Yeah. Um, not to say like, I'm sitting down with a guitar or anything like that. You know, I don't play guitar. I don't play drums. Um, but sitting down with, with new input and you know driving the conversation a little bit and then you know having others execute those ideas you know but really being closely uh, linked to that i think you know as time went on you know in the early stages of the project i was always in the room when we were writing the music you know but as time went on i was less and less involved with riffs and stuff mm-hmm. and it was something that i desired to be a part of you know again so i think that was the biggest thing for me is is the challenge of it and mm-hmm. uh it, it was scary for yep. sure, you know, and it was scary going forward without those guys. And it was always mixed emotions about it, you know, because I knew that, you know, not everyone was going to agree with the decision. Yeah. You know? And still there are a lot of people to this day that don't. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. I, this thing started, you know, this thing was an idea in my brain that I was pursuing for a couple of years before the band actually started. So I've always mm-hmm. viewed it as kind of like, you know, as much as other guys have contributed along the way and been a part of it, just as much part of it, you know, it was always kind of like a thing that I started, you yeah. know? And so that, I guess that combined with the challenge is like, no, why not? You know, let, let's give this a shot and see what happens. things you had seen that had changed uh in the music industry by the time you get to wait for the sirens that chose you to go independently on that record versus when you were independent with songs to burn your bridges by yeah it, it was it was more just more possible you know uh going the orthodox label route when we started was kind of the only route and as more and more time has, has gone on and it's really technology that's made it possible sure. for, for artists to release their own music and distribute their own music and market their own music. Uh, you know, when you're signed to a label, you know, it's a trade-off. You're giving them most of the money <laughs> right. in order to make your band bigger yeah. you know, and to give you a bigger fan base. And we were in a unique position uh, really since relatively early on that we had a pretty loyal fan base. You know, and Pick a Fence Cartel was 
kind of a hybrid deal where a lot of the responsibility kind of fell on us, mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse. We, I, you know, I personally learned a lot of lessons on that record about what to do and what not to do. And really every record since, uh, it, but it was a, an evolution sort of, um, just as, you know, the member changes along the way or the lineup changes was kind of an evolution over a period of time. The evolution towards being able to do it a little bit more independently uh, was also less learning lessons over a period of time. And um, it kind of came to that point where this, it just made the most sense. You know, we still, you know, on that record, we partnered with distributors yeah, you know, so that and and we had a marketing team, and you know, we just kind of became our own label. Yeah, to release our own stuff. You've been you've been doing Project A Six a long time. You've seen not just the Christian music industry, but the music industry completely flip. What has been the thing for you, especially in the later stages of your career, that have been like wild to witness, especially as like Christian music as a scene and genre has kind of dissolved really like, right. Uh, you have to, and, th and this has become increasingly. So you have to do more and more work <laughs> to achieve the same or less results. Yeah. Uh, the amount of knowledge that you have to have of algorithms and uh, Google and YouTube mm -hmm. and you know, Spotify and such. Uh, there is, a ton of admin that needs to happen behind the scenes uh, in the digital sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and really the thing that, that flipped the script on the music industry besides the digital music phenomenon mm -hmm. in the early two thousands was social media. Yeah. Now you can market yourself for free yeah. to fans, but also because people have access to public figures through social media the expectations changed yeah. and attention spans got shorter and it, it just changed everything. It, 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 it destroyed, I think something that was an earmark of rock music for many decades. And that was mystique. Yeah. It really r ruined that. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think not in a good way because as a music fan, I always loved the fact that, you had to fill in the blanks with your imagination as to who these guys were that were making the music. And you, you really just had a piece, a piece of album art, you know, maybe something in a booklet, some lyrics in the music, and maybe if, some interviews to refer to, yeah. but there was so much gap between the music fan and the people making the music that it left room for the imagination, Yeah, you know, and, and that's something that we've lost increasingly in recent time. And I really kind of lament that on a regular mm. basis. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the biggest thing is the death of mystique mm -hmm. and, and really, you know, the, the fact that you have to stay in people's faces yeah. for the most part, you know, unless you're really special, you know, people will forget about you. And move on yeah. if You don't stay in their faces and post regularly. You yeah. never had to do that. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know, I, I definitely, I'm an old guy saying this, but <laughs> yeah, I, I miss the days when you could print up the flyers, you know, go to shows, hand them out and people would show up to your show because yeah. there was nothing else going on. Right. You know, 
where you would go and you would play a random town and you might not draw a million people the first time you play there, but some people are going to come out just to yeah. check out the band because there's a band playing the town. That is, none of that happens anymore. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I talked to someone the other day and it's like talking about Jake VFW hall shows and just like, as a local band, it's like, all right, band X is coming through. If we can just get on the bill and play three songs, we're, we're good. Like, yeah. or just like, even as a fan going to shows where it's like, there's a show at the VFW hall every night of the week, we can go see hardcore every night. <laughs> like, yeah. That doesn't, and, and that's what we did. We would yeah. go to shows every weekend, sometimes two on a weekend. Yeah. And it was a lot of the same bands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I loved that. And yeah. uh, Again, you didn't have as many options. Mm -hmm. and, and that is kind of the curse of where we're at in civilization now. Yeah. Unlimited options. Yeah. Yeah. Has the touring kind of changed, especially as like it seems like church shows don't really happen anymore like they did in the late nineties, early two thousands? Uh that's a that's an interesting question. Um of course it has. You know, when the band was first starting it wasn't lame to play a show at a church, you know, and as mm -hmm. the band grew, we didn't want to do that anymore Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. Right. because it wasn't, it wasn't as cool. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a chapter in the band where we didn't do any of that at all. You mm -hmm. know, any of the Christian festivals or churches or, or anything. Uh, and then I think over time it just got harder and harder to, to, to do it at all. So you, yep. you kind of open the door back up to doing that kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, ever since the early days, you know, I, you know, I don't think anyone who's involved with the band preferred to do those types of shows. Yeah. Um, but if we got an offer there, you know, on a Wednesday and we needed to fill the date, we would do it. You know, um, always prefer to play, you know, you play Columbus, Ohio, you know, you want to play Scully's, you know, um, but as far as the greater question of touring evolving and such, uh, you know, we've seen a resurgence in recent history, I think, of people desiring to get out to live shows, yeah. especially post-pandemic times. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we've also seen a resurgence of heavy music, which yeah. is really great. You know, mm -hmm. Some of these bands have been doing it for years um, are bigger than they've ever been. I mean, look at the crowds that Meshuggah is playing for these days. Right, right. Yeah. You know? um, so, you know, we've seen some some resurgence over time um of of the live venue performance but uh i think with the advent again of like you know more options yep. you know going out to a show isn't the only game in town so it's it's a little bit more challenging to get mm -hmm. people out of their houses off their phones and <laughs> out to a real performance yeah. i think that's the biggest evolution it's kind of yeah. similar to the changes in the music industry now to end the band that's a great question uh the the feeling that i had pre-pandemic was where where what else is there to accomplish where else is there to go creatively mm -hmm. you know that's always kind of the biggest question because when it comes down to it 
it's a lot of work to yeah. make music. I mean, of course you can just sit down and slap something together. Um, and I think we had the benefit of not having done it so many times early on, you know, uh, but the further you go, you know, the more you have to be aware of what you've done previously, at least for project. It's always, there's always been a, a, an importance or an emphasis placed upon reinvention. You know, uh, mm -hmm. we've reinvented ourselves a lot along the way uh, because that's fun. Yeah. You know, it's fun to try new stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was a little bit of, of the, of the pull in, in, in me. And then really to be totally honest and candid as I've gotten older, I've had this increasing sense of anxiety about the way that I sing okay. and it's not unfounded. Uh, when we made truthless heroes, not a lot of people know this, but when we made truthless heroes I actually got a vocal cord nodule when I was in the studio. Mm. Uh, uh, we, <laughs> this is really dumb looking back on it again, it's like 2020 <laughs> right before we started recording vocals. Right. So we, we <laughs> go back to truthless heroes era. Uh, we're in the studio. We finished the instruments. It's time to sing. And the, I don't remember whose idea it was, uh, but the idea was let's go to Vegas for the weekend. <laughs> so we go to Vegas and I was in those casinos with the smoke and the, yeah. the bad air all weekend, came back and caught some bug and it was laryngitis. I'd never had laryngitis my entire life. <laughs> uh, went in day one to sing and my voice didn't work. Like I would try to go into like the Schwab shout voice and it would crack. And I'm like, something's wrong, man. <laughs> and so instead of stopping, I sang harder oh. and I still couldn't make it work. And then I felt something kind of like break in my throat. Oh, And that from there started a really, gosh, you, you know, you asked me why truthless heroes is so hard for me memory. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the reasons it started a really, really difficult chain of events for me, uh, involving, you know, I was already going to a, a vocal coach. Um, the label had suggested that and I really wanted to go to learn how to like not lose my voice. Yeah. You know, losing my voice is always an issue. So I went, the, I went to the voice coach saying, he's like, I think you have a nodule. And then he sent me to a voice doctor. So, um, it was really funny because I'm going to the celebrity vo vocal coach, <laughs> celebrity voice doctor. And they're like telling me, you know, you know, the, the voice coach works with like Chris Cornell and Maynard <laughs> and like all these people. Uh, and then I'm going to the doctor and he's like, yeah, Ozzy was just in here before you, you know, and like, it was, it was just like, what kind of weird world am I in? Yeah. You know? And that was kind of the weird thing of going to the majors, you know, the major label world. Yeah. You got to like kind of be around all that stuff, which was really magical. Mm -hmm. A lot of stories from that era that are really cool. But I, uh, you know, from there, you know, I had to go to a speech therapist, you know, for weeks. I had to go on voice rest for like, so we're trying to tour on a record after yeah. that, you know, and I'm trying to finish making a record. And like, they're telling me, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. And for about six months, you know, I'm going to doing all this stuff. And yeah. it's not working. The nodule's getting worse and worse and worse. Finally, I had a surgery scheduled where it was like they were going to surgically remove this bump on my vocal cord. Mm. And I don't know why I decided not to do it. You know, it was definitely the right thing in hindsight because yeah. it's a very risky surgery. Uh, and you can permanently damage your voice with scar right. tissue if it's not done correctly or if you don't, you know, if you don't heal from it correctly. Yeah. 
So I did decide not to do it because of the risk. And I'm like, I'm just going to figure it out and let the chips fall. And so I had been operating for a long time since like 2003, 2004 with the thought in mind that I was damaging my voice more and more and more and more. Mm-hmm. I had been told by people close to me, family members that my speaking voice was starting to get raspier and raspier over time. Uh, there were some times on the road and in the studio where I lost my voice really bad and had to go on voice rest again for like six weeks. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever had to go on voice rest, but it's no. not very fun. I, I'd imagine not. <laughs> it's super isolating because you can't talk to anyone. Yeah. You know, for like a month or six weeks at a time, like probably eight different times throughout my career, I've had to do that. And you just feel alone and terrified and you know, it's hard. So I didn't go to the doctor again for like <laughs> <laughs> almost 20 years. Wow. And I'm operating with this time. I'm getting older. I'm going to reach a point that like, I can't sing anymore mm-hmm. like this. So that was the biggest thing in my mind uh, going into like making this announcement. I was like, okay, you know, I'm not revealing my age on this podcast. I never tell people my age, but <laughs> you, you can do, yeah, I've been doing 27 years. I started when I was in college. So you can do the math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty old, right? Comparatively speaking to most dudes in this game. Although there are a lot of great bands, I think in heavy music that are my age and even older, yeah. they're still making yeah. great music. So it's yeah. not unheard of. Um, that was the biggest thing for me is it's like, I probably say 70% of that decision is like, I, you know, let's do this one more time. You know, I might not, you know, I don't even know where I'm going to end up on the other side of it. I might not have a voice yeah. at all, you know, and uh, fast forward, get into writing the music and uh, we get to the point where I'm about to, you know, go into the studio to record vocals with uh, Bo Bruchel, uh who's fantastic. I got to drop his name. Favorite. Yeah. One of my favorite, produ- I think my favorite producer I've ever worked with oh. over the years. He rules. Just a good dude. Um, it was, yeah, the uh, early part of 2022, I got COVID and uh, lost my voice <laughs> right before going into studio. And like, it was not coming back, dude. Oh. Like it hurt. It felt like it felt when I first got the nodule. Oh man. So for years I've been operating with one nodule in my brain waiting for the next one because when you get one it's like a callus when your vocal cords come together yeah. uh you get a bump there and it pushes on the other one and over time the other another vocal cord nodule and then your mm-hmm. vocal cords can't come together at all you need to remove them or you need to do some sort of therapy to over time get rid of them. this stuff's stressful yeah so <laughs> i i'm finally at the point it's a month i had covid i couldn't talk my voice hurt it wasn't going away i'm like oh finally ruined my voice <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna be able to sing to make this record. I'm like, I have to go to the doctor. I've been putting off going to the doctor for so long. It had been such a built up terror in yeah. my mind. You know, like I took a week between the time when I made the appointment, when I went to finally get myself centered, <laughs> praying on my knees every day, you know, like, okay, I accept that my music career is over. This is, you know, yeah. wild frontman thinking here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm finally to the point where I'm like, okay, I accept it. I accept it. You know, I'm done. You know, and I go in. I went to, oh, I did do acupuncture for a couple of weeks prior <laughs> to that because, like, hoping that would yeah. help because that yeah. does help with certain things. Uh, finally, I'm like, okay, go to the doctor. And they, what they do is they put a tube up your nose and down your throat and they make you sing. It's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And so they do that. And then they have like a screen where you can like see your, your vocal cords. I'm, I'm in the doctor. She does the thing. She makes me sing. 
And she looks at the screen and I look at it with her. She takes that thing out of my face and she's like, Oh, your vocal cords look perfect. You just have some residual like swelling in your throat from being sick. And like, wow. if there was one piece of information I was not ready for, it was yeah. that. Yeah. So I'm like, not like the world's like spinning around me. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Okay. I'm like numb in a good way. I'm like, yeah. I don't know how to, so I'm carrying this thing with me for 20 years. Yeah. I walk out in the street and it's like a scene from like a film <laughs> you know, where the camera is spinning around the guy. Cause he just found out, you know, some piece of information. Everything's a little like brighter. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm like, I'm healed. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What am I going to, what am I going to, Oh my gosh, I can do, I can do this, you know, like just thanking heaven, thanking God, mm -hmm. you know, get in my car. I'm calling everybody. I know I'm like, dude, look, I, I can, wow. Like, I don't even know what to say. Yeah. So shortly thereafter going to the studio and another thing happened, uh, you know, I had always wanted to make part of me wanted truthless heroes to be even heavier than drawing black lines. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the way it was going to go because yeah. of the type of the music that we needed to make for the label. Ever since then, we've been more of a rock leaning band. Yeah. You know, that's just the way the cookie had crumbled. You know, always, I've always mentioned to people like when you sit in a room and you write music with people or you're working collaboratively with anyone, uh, what comes out is the intersection of your, your circles, your yeah. orbits. Right. And mm -hmm. so that, whatever that intersects, that's the sound, mm -hmm. you know, and for whatever reason, it's always been more of a rock, you know, with heavy moments, but yeah. like it was always more of a rock sound. I finally said, okay, this is going to be the last time I do this. I want to do everything that I always wanted to do, but never did or never could or whatever. So I'm like, I want to do the heaviest stuff. I want this to be more metal. And like, I'm going to make sure that happens no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that was I wanted to, I had been the last decade at our live show, maybe even more. I've been evolving the way I sing really to preserve my voice. Mm -hmm. But what was coming out in me singing later was a more growly, almost metal kind of voice. Yeah. Um, but I had never done it on a record. Mm -hmm. And so I knew going into it because we dropped this Christmas song a couple seasons ago that I tried that on. It sounded yeah. good and was pretty well received. I thought at least uh, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this voice in the studio. And it ended up not only sounding right for the music, yeah. but you know, I'm sitting in the room with Bo and he's like, dude, you sound great. Like this is the best you've ever sounded. Yeah. I'm like, I feel like I finally found my voice and it took me 20 some years to get here. <laughs> So, and then like I start showing the music to people and Bo sitting in the room. He's like, dude, this is the best stuff that's ever come out of your band. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, we're just biased. Like, this is like, you always think that when you're in the studio. Right. Yeah. You know, but I know how I feel in my heart when I'm listening to like Metatropolis, which was the first single that we yeah. dropped. You know, when we finished that song, I was like, oh my gosh <laughs> you know he lives in temecula i live in foothill ranch it's a, you know an hour drive i listen to the song on repeat the, the drive home that day in the studio and i'm like oh my gosh people are going to lose their minds yeah. <laughs> when they hear this because it's it's going to be they're just not going to think you know what i mean that's even project yeah the second thing that's going to happen is i'm going to get who's the guest vocalist yeah and that's been happening so much i yeah. just laugh when that happens because it's really funny but um, yeah, the music, it came out so much 
you know, and hats off to the whole proof. You know, we've got a lot of people working on this thing. Yeah. I've never had such a big team of people working on his music. Yeah. You know, big shout to everybody, you know, from Bo to Michael Palmquist to Grayson Stewart and Corey and Matt, everybody, you know, yeah. working on this thing. Uh, Darren, uh, really excited about it, you mm-hmm. know, but you're supposed to be excited about your latest thing. But I yeah. really think this is like a better version, uh, like a reinvention or a, you know, uh, it's a left turn in a good way mm-hmm. and it's something else entirely. And I don't know how to navigate that right now yeah. because I, it's not that I ever wanted to stop making music. You know, it's just that I felt like I, I can't, Yeah. you know? So I'm in this weird crossroads. We haven't dropped the record yet. I'm hoping that when people hear the record, they're going to be really stoked on it. There's a lot to this record. You know, I'm doing a lot of things that I've always wanted to do. It's a, conceptual to double album yeah um uh we're doing like a visual album slash film for part one of the double album i'm also i've written the first draft of like a fiction book that goes along with it um so it's meant to be kind of like an immersive experience we're even doing a fan-driven alternate reality game um that a a group of our patreon community have just taken the reins and building which is really fun we're not done with it yet but uh that's coming down the pipe as well. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. And I don't know what any of it means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting here with this thing and it's like, yeah, you're out. I should not have announced this was our last <laughs> record. I don't, you know, it, it's not that I've ever had that specific thought. Okay. But it's, it's just really cool that, you know, it, lot, the fans have been super supportive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like beyond. Um, and I don't know how I'm, I'm going to feel when we get through, you know, delivering all the content. Cause there's so yeah. much more stuff we have to do. We're going yeah. to record part two of the double album here very shortly. Um, and then we're going to play shows and, you know, I don't, I don't know how to process it all yet. Yeah. I know this is a point of departure for me personally, but a lot of people say this can't be the last thing that you make, you know, and I'm in my brain going, if it can be like this, I want to keep making more music like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. What does that look like for project 86 and the history of the band and all that stuff? Because you know, so much of, you know, what the legacy of this band is defined by it, you know, is you know, earlier, you know what I mean? Yeah. We've done some, I think some stuff that's made some waves in more recent history, but there's, yeah. you know, it's evolved. It's become something different, you know, and in my brain right now, it's like, Albums one through 10 were one thought, sort of, when you boil it down. This yeah. is a new thought. Point of departure. What does that mean moving forward? Is it a different name? Is it a different thing? Or do I just, you know, am I even going to want to make more once yeah. we're all done with this? I don't know. You know, but I, I try not to leave any door slammed shut. Um, I was proceeding sincerely, you know, thinking... Yeah things were a certain way and i've just been surprised and shocked and in a really great way and how all this is i've never had so much fun making music yeah you know and i feel so connected to it and like the heavier sound it's just really close to my heart you know not to take anything away from stuff that's come in the past but i just love what's happened here and and i'm really excited for it to drop yeah yeah, I, I think the more I've listened to the record each time, I like it more. And there's something I'm hearing 
different on it with each listen and i yeah it's it's really great like yeah it's funny listening through the discography and it's like you can hear like your screams it's like that scream on run i think it is um mm-hmm. on the first record and it's like on the one arm man demo like you're like it's there it's it's always been there it's just not unleashed yet <laughs> yeah it's just so weird that i sincerely felt like in the studio it's like, I mean, I painted the picture to you, but I still can't put into words how much I've struggled with my voice over yeah. the years mm-hmm. because the the way that I do that shouty sound, I mean, that's kind of like my sound yeah. traditionally. Uh, it, it hurts me to sing that way. It hurts yeah. my head. It hurts my throat. It you know it hurts my vocal cords. And when I do the heavier sound, it doesn't at all. I can yeah. sing like that all day, you know, and... I love heavy music. Yeah. I just, I've always desired to do something a little bit more extreme. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound like what has come out of the name project 86 in the past. So that's a dilemma. But yeah. um, then again, neither did rival factions, neither did truthless heroes. You know, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of left turns. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, man. I'm just having fun and trying to stay in the moment, trying to live in the now and, and be thankful and, mm-hmm. um, you know, communicate gratitude towards you know every person that's been a part of this or or supported it along the way yeah yeah that's the most important thing is that it's seeing people get excited about the music is yeah you can't put can't put a value on that yeah you know it's the most encouraging thing in the whole world when you you go check out the comments on your music video and people are just blown away yeah you know, it's, it's just really fun yeah is this the first time since Truthless Heroes you've sat down and written conceptually in this way? No, Knives to the Future, which was our um, ninth record, was a story. Um, but that's the only other time that I've tried to do that. I mean, it's kind of a mis... I don't know, what's the, what's the term? You know, when you say the word concept, it, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't evoke good things right (laughs) you know it's not necessarily cool um Mm -hmm. but i like stories and i like world building you know Mm -hmm. really it's the world building that i love you know and captivating the imagination or attempting to so Mm -hmm. how can i make something that will touch you know different pieces of your imagination maybe you know mm-hmm. i've always been someone who's a fan of words and i like writing i like telling stories so let's write a let's write a story let's write mm-hmm. a real story let's use the music as a as a sound a score you know uh, and then let's let's develop some visuals around it and make it one thing yeah. that people can sort of get lost in hopefully yeah. um it's pretty dark it's also darker than a lot of the stuff that we've done before and we've done some fairly dark stuff I and mean, this is even more dark yeah so it's it's fun though super fun yeah. i love i love it Thanks for listening to As the Story Grows. Our intro music was written and composed by Jeremy Hunt. 
The As the Story Grows theme is by Bob Nana. If you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can join us at patreon.com slash as the story grows. Be a part of our community and join the ongoing conversation over on Discord. If you enjoy this episode, share it on social media with your friends. Much appreciated, and thanks for listening. I'm not-